Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Possibly from Northern Italy and Veneto, and growing under a variety of different names from Northern to Mid-Italy, Verdicchio has made itself at home in the Marche. In the Marche, Verdicchio can have a unique symbiosis with Malvasia and Trebbiano, where the grapes in Trio can create a unique, mysterious, and age-worthy wine. It can also be bottled on its own and can be truly ethereal with some age. Verdicchio has been confused with Trebbiano often in the past, but especially with DNA profiling, the story of Verdicchio is becoming ever clearer. In fact, Verdicchio's past helps clarify some of the passions and motivations of people living in Italy in the 15th and 16th centuries. Verdicchio moved around North and Central Italy during a few centuries when the Italian peninsula suffered multiple plague outbreaks. Some outbreaks would be small, hitting a few hundred people in a localized area. And when an outbreak happened, little spots, lentil-like spots, would show up on the skin, and then lymph nodes would swell, and rarely would anyone live beyond the fifth day of catching the disease. Usually, if one person in the house contracted the plague, everyone else in the house would catch it and die around the same time. It was just devastating. Outbreaks swept across Europe, leaving hundreds of thousands dead in the wake. In this time of uncertainty, a time when you're constantly reminded of humankind's mortality, and a time when entire populations searched for a greater meaning in it all, some of the greatest art was born. During one of the most devastating plague outbreaks in the mid-1300s, called the Black Death Pandemic, that claimed millions of lives, uh, during this time, Giovanni Boccaccio wrote The Decameron. This book is set just outside of Florence in a deserted villa during a plague outbreak. The ten characters in the book hunker down outside the city to ride out the plague. The villa was likely empty because its owners probably were plague victims, and its new inhabitants told stories to wait out the Florentine epidemic and hopefully avoid infection to save their own lives. The basic premise of the story that we all probably read in high school highlights some of the social unrest that motivated people in the 1300s to 1600s during plague outbreaks. 
People wanted to leave cities during the outbreak. Empty houses and villas were there for the taking. People were dying left and right, and this caused many people to act differently than they may have in non-plague times, acting impulsively, living in the moment. But perhaps most tellingly, as the book's frame story shows, many people just wanted to move out of urban plague zones and take cover in less populated areas. In the 1300s through the 1600s, on the Italian peninsula, many migrations of people and the grapes they took with them were motivated by plague outbreaks. From 1576 through 1577, in Milan, for example, the city recorded over 17,000 plague deaths. And this same plague outbreak in Venice was responsible for 50 to 60,000 deaths. I mean, just imagine that much of a city's population just being wiped out within a year. The outbreak from 1576 to 77 was one of the worst to hit Italy since the Black Death pandemic in the 1300s. A doctor in the Marche, Marino Masucci, who wrote about the 1576 plague, described a pandemic that swept through cities. He distinguished between different types of sicknesses that were often lumped into one disease by doctors. And Masucci himself may have been taking refuge. He formerly practiced in Padua, then stayed in the Marche during the outbreak. But he also may have been motivated to return to his home of Jezi after studying and practicing in the north. It was just before this plague outbreak that Masucci described when Verdicchio was first mentioned in the historic records of the Marche. Who was the first person to bring Verdicchio to the Marche? And when they planted their cuttings in the Marche, was the vineyard a memorial to an abandoned past, a dead past? Did the vines remind them of a better, plague-free time from their home in the north? When the motivation to move, to move for your life, is so strong that you pack up for good, move your family, and think to bring some vines with you for the long haul, the grapevines they become more than just a food source. They become a symbol of identity. It's likely that Verdicchio traveled across various parts of Italy, likely moving north to south, during the social unrest caused by the plague across the four centuries from the 14th through 17th centuries. In fact, as we use genetics to trace Verdicchio's path across Italy, Verdicchio helps tell a larger story of the human condition during a time of great strain. In Verdicchio, you'll not only find great wine, you'll find hints of the indelible human spirit. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. 
Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Corrado Dettori of La Distessa in the Marche of Italy. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. Thank you. Nice to have you here. So your first vintage at La Distessa was in 2000. Yes. My first harvest, 99, but I was still living in Milan. And then we moved in uh, March 2000. My first vintage was 2000. And what brought about that move? Why did you decide to move from the city to the country? It's a good question. <laughs> I grew up in, in Milan and I, I studied there and I graduated in economics. So not um, winemaking? No, 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 absolutely not. And I began to work in a bank, an international bank. And then this was the, the end of the 90s. So it was the period of the boom in the Nasdaq, in the, all the finance system was really booming. And everybody was asking for stock options. And it was a very crazy world. And my family, they were from, from the market region. So they owned these small pieces of land. But my father was an engineer, so he left the region in the 60s and 70s. And so we grew up in, in Milano, me and my brother. And this land was ran to farmers that took half of the production working in the fields. So at that period, in, at the end of the 90s, I thought that could be uh, like a dream to change my life and try to do this experience. So going back to my father's land, and uh, and try i was i was already you know not an expert but you know a lover of wines and so with valeria my wife we decided to change our life so what was your first move when you arrived in the market the idea was at the beginning was not really to to make wine but was to to change our life so we went to live in this house that was uh, was not a ruin, but there weren't people living there since 20 years. So we began to restore a little bit the house and we opened a small bed and breakfast, like a farm oil day. So we began with that and, and of course with the, with the wine, but we only had one hectare at the moment. The vineyard that my father planted in 1980. And it was Verdigio. Yeah, because Cooper Montana is is called the uh, so-called the capital of Verdicchio. So ninety percent of comes from Verdicchio grape. So that's a nice head start though, in the fact that you start and you get twenty year old vines. I mean it's only a hectare, but if you start a business and you start from zero, it's much more complicated, of course. So I, I have to thank my family and, and my parents because they they never sold these properties, you know. Even if they lived uh, very far, because from Milano is about five hours drive, you know. Yeah, it's like to to maintain your route, you know. So you go back, and then 
what was it that you decided to make wine? I mean, obviously you had vines, but what was the move there? What was the change? In Italy, and not only in Italy, probably all around the world, but especially in Italy, that was the time of the super Tuscans of, uh, you know, the, the great wine, super, super concentrated and, uh, with a lot of winemaking, you know, and, uh, the only real thing that I knew at the time about wine was, you know, how to taste it. I took some courses and and so uh, for me the wine world was something very 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 fancy very the fancy wine the all this kind of stuff and so what I what I did was to to take a winemaker and I bought some stuff for the seller so we had these very old barrels and we, we took all uh, off from the cellar and we bought the stainless steel, new uh, machines, and we began to make wine in the way that at the moment uh, we thought was the way. You know? I only had one law in mind that was I want to be organic to make something which is safe for people and for the nature, you know? So this was the, the first, first step. But otherwise, of course, working with a winemaker, everything in the cellar was a little bit about cleaning everything, about control everything, about the, 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 you know, the fermentation with the right yeast and, you know, what we, we know, we know, uh, what winemaking is. And uh, so I started in, in this way. Did you like the taste of the wines? Yes, yes. The wines, the wines were, were good and were authentic. I mean, the winemaker then, of course, became my friend, you know, and we still, I, I also saw him yesterday, so he tasted my wine. What did he say? Because, I mean, your wines now are somewhat different. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we discussed it for many years about, you know, uh, winemaking, about uh, uh, wines, and so we are good friends. But at the moment, you know, I, I didn't know the alternative. And so when did that alternative start to become clear? I mean, when did you start to see that there were some other options out there in terms of protocol, like how you could go about it? When you, you make wine, then you have to sell it. And it was very shocking for me because it was like uh, being back in my old world. The idea was, okay, I left a bank where everybody is completely crazy selling, you know, stock options or selling, you know, making money with money. And now I'm here selling wines to people, which is crazy the same way. And, you know, which is the difference, you know? And so in, uh, in those years, I was a little bit in, in not in crisis, but you know, thinking, what, what's going on? In your life, you in mean, my life, like a life know? change. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I found out that there was uh, something else. And I think in 2002 and then in 2003, you know, we, we began to, to meet these people that basically were 
like like me is more producers focused on you know uh organic wines but from outside the market though yeah yeah at the beginning yes because yes. there's not so many kind of no no wine. no at that time probably probably the only one was uh natalino cornaletti from uh, fattoria san lorenzo probably and so we 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 began to go to this small market and uh, meeting many people and many wine growers also from France, where probably this movement was born. People from Beaujolais and stuff like that. Yeah, from Beaujolais and then from Loire and then from all over. And then was the moment when the, the book from uh, Nicolas Jolie was translated in Italy. And f- the moment when Josco Gravner began to work with the Amphora. Uh, so it was like a revolution stuff you yeah. know everything was changing and uh, and in two or three years you know um uh, i decided I, I went to france to meeting some producers and i visit marcel lapierre and his wines were very shocking for me and but also pierre breton and, and in italy of course uh, stefano bellotti and giulino maule and, and many others and so I began to, to work about this way of, uh, of winemaking, you know. And uh, so from 2004, actually, we began with natural, a uh, little bit of natural uh, fermentation, spontaneous fermentation. How did that work out for you? At the beginning, was very, um, was, I was so, I have so, I had a fear, you know, really a fear because when, when the idea is to control everything, you know, going in a way where the idea is, no, you are completely free. You are, it's, it's really difficult, you know, because uh, every day you are there testing, you know, during the fermentation, oh, there is a bad bacteria <laughs> or, oh, the reduction, oh, the oxidation, you know, it's... It's difficult because it's like when you jump in the void. You don't know where you, you, you are going. So the f- first years were very, very tough. And also the discussions with the winemaker were very, with the analog, very tougher and tougher, you know, because I told him, okay, let's reduce the sulfate. Oh, no, you cannot. Reduce the sulfates, okay? Let's uh, use less, you know, something. Oh, no, you cannot because otherwise uh, the malolactic is, uh, it, this is, uh, you know, it's a continuous uh, battle. But I found out that the wines had something new, something deeper, probably. Maybe the first vintages at, at that time were better. You know, because when you change, you have to find your way. So probably I had in the middle, I have a couple, two or three vintages that are not really as as I wanted. But, you know, it, it was a learning by doing. Until I found out that everything could be more relaxed, more, you know, uh, easy, easier. What were your parents like? Were they relaxed people or were they more tack, tack, tack people? No, no. They, uh, they worked all their, all their life, uh, you know, uh, 
in very stressful uh, job and and so no they are they were not very relaxed so this was kind of like an opposite door for you kind of out of family life too they were very very um worried in a way because of course i was living a world that was you know the world of uh, everything is stable uh, the money comes and you know you can you can have a family you can <laughs> yeah no and you weren't married at the time uh in 2001 but kids came later so, so there's all kinds of life changes happening around the same time yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 but your wife was into it the natural wine idea uh yes completely even if she maintained uh, her job She's completely part of La Distesa. She tastes and says, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So that must be nice that you can do it together, especially if you're having arguments with your own lug, that yeah, you have yeah. a partner of some kind. Yeah. <laughs> we were two against one. Right. right. <laughs> what happens next in the story? Slower and slower, of course. I started with one actor and then I rent a little bit piece here, a little bit piece there. Uh, so the 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 answer from the market was was good. Local market or export market? No, from the beginning was the export market. Yeah, because you have to consider that it was very very hard to sell uh, real traditional wines in, uh, in the region, because in these last twenty years everything has changed, and the taste of of people switched to new wines, you know, wines that comes from a very strong winemaking. And so at the moment, people in the market region prefer, you know, the, the new styles of Verdicchio or Pecorino or even Montepulciano and especially in, in the, for the white wines. It's very difficult to let understand people that this was the way that, you know, for 8,000 <laughs> of years... Uh, wines was made. The anomaly is the current situation, yeah, not yeah. the yeah, no. exactly, exactly. And this is a it's, it's kind of it sounds strange because we have always to add a word uh, to the word wine. So it's a natural wine, it's a true wine, it's authentic wine. We make wine in the way human ever <laughs> made wines. You know, it's like now having the organic certification. I pay for put, you know, uh, <laughs> green leaves on my label, but I pay I pay that I'm working safe. Right. And, and, and you know, but probably it's the other way that yeah. should pay. Right, a penalty. Like, you know, yeah. a penalty, a tax, you know, a carbon tax, uh, something, you know, because they are making pollution. <laughs> <laughs> in in doing uh, an industrial farming, you know, uh, but I, I I don't want to make this you know fighting between the, the big and the small. You can be small and making uh, a very bad farming, you know. It's not about being big and small. It's about making good wines and bad wines for me <laughs> at the end. And so the export markets that were supportive were. I have uh, to confess that at the beginning was very, very important. Yeah. And still now, still now. Now everybody 
is uh, looking to the the export because nobody in Italy <laughs> drink wine anymore. <laughs> the consumption is, you know, really falling. So you started with a hectare of Verdicchio, but yeah. subsequently you started working with Trebbiano, Malvasia, yeah. and then red grape varieties. Yeah. Trebbiano and Malvasia were there because the old vineyards were also complanted, you know, planted with different varieties. The pure Verdicchio, the Verdicchio 100% is something that comes from probably the last two decades. Oh, really? So it's yeah. a fairly recent thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Before the, the DOC law, which is uh, back to 1968, uh, Verdicchio was, uh, was completely a blend of different grapes, different varieties. So Verdicchio was for sure the most important, but uh, there was in the blend Trebbiano, Malvasia, and also many other like also Albana or, you know, Moscato was very different varieties. And then when, when the, the DOC came, they said, no, it had to be uh, at least 85% Verdicchio. The old vineyards maintain a little bit of Trebbiano and Malvasia, but then in the last two decades, it's like 100% Verdicchio. With the new clones, which are being selected in the late, 80s first first years of the 90s so do you ever see those old bottles in the cellars of the market like do you ever open up old wines from no no it's very difficult to find something because at that time you know verdicchio was a very popular wine very very popular the amphora bottles like that kind of verdicchio yeah Yeah. exactly and probably with chianti uh in the 60s uh was the most popular wine uh abroad you know White was the Verdicchio and red was the Chianti. But it was a very easy, very, very easy wine, uh, something for pizzeria, for uh, the summer, but without any chance to age. And this probably is the reason why in the 70s and the 80s it came a very big crisis, because the image of the variety and of the wine was very, very, very low. So... Uh, Prices were low and people were leaving the region uh, and all the vineyards were cut off. But that gave you an opportunity, right? Because you could come in and get old vines, either rent or buying them. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. It's an opportunity, but in another way, we lost a big, big heritage, you know, a big, big heritage. Because, for example, my old vineyard is 36 years old. It's not an old vineyard, but it is an old vineyard. It's almost impossible to find a vineyard that has more than 40, 45 years in my region now. And this is a, an, a, an incredible uh, you know, uh, damage, an incredible problem because only uh, an old vineyard can express the soil, the, the climate, the terroir. And this probably is why we are focusing so much on the variety. You know, you say verdicchio and it's easier. But it's for me, it's not the right way to communicate, you know, the region and the, the, the terroir you are, uh, you are living in. So you're saying that the vines don't have the roots down into the terroir to express it, really? Yeah, yeah. 
So what is the place like? I mean, what is the topography yeah. climate? I am in uh, Cupra Montana, which is 500 meters. The top, the village is the top of the hill and all the vineyards are on the slopes, uh, north, south. and uh, So you may find vineyards with very different you know, expositions and altitude from 100 meters to 450 meters uh, in north exposition or south exposition. And uh, so this is very important to communicate this, but nobody knows it. You know, everybody thinks that Verdicchio is one thing, monolith. one thing. And, and also ge- geologically, it's very interesting because it's, it's not all the same. Basically, the, the hills were under the sea level between 5 millions and 13 millions of years ago. And so the Adriatic Sea made some, you know, regressions and movements uh, many different times and, and left these sediments of clay, of uh, sandstones. And so there are some differences in the area. The big one, of course, is Matelica is different from Castelli di Iesi, especially in the climate. Matelica is much more inside the mountain, so it's much more uh, cold area. And Castelli di Iesi is much more uh, Mediterranean wine, closer to the sea. And, uh, but also geologically, there are some differences. I can see that because it kind of reminds you of those like Cassi like from the south of France, kind of Mediterranean whites, that yeah. kind of flavors of the yeah. the yellow, but the scrub brush, that kind of thing, you know, yeah. in, yeah. in Verdicchio, I think. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. But as I, as I told you before, uh, there is not a big focus on that. Until now, probably, it will be, I don't know. But uh, my idea is that it's it's very easy... Focusing to the variety and all the world probably think about Italy, but Italian wines like only the variety and less about the places, the crew, the, the, the vineyard. Speaking to many Italian vintners, I've often found that they don't bring up the soil type unless you ask them. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you say, oh, what kind of soil is this? They'll say like, oh, Kelkar, but that's not the first thing they talk about usually. I mean, it's a... Yeah. Big country, there's a lot they of are people. Completely and, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas I think in France, uh, yeah. you know, sometimes you see it on the labels, you know, granite or you know. Yeah. I don't want to be misunderstood. I mean, for me, it's a very, it's a very good thing to have all these original varieties, you know, because if you want to taste pecorino, you you have to come to the Marca region, you know. But the problem is that if you focus only on the variety. If you ask to 10 people, not only in the States or in France or in Germany, but also in Italy, where are the market region? Probably eight or nine, they don't know where is the region. <laughs> but probably they have drunk uh, Pecorino and they, they know about the variety, which is strange. The Marque, what's kind of interesting about it is that on one side you have Abruzzo, right? Yeah. And on the other side you have the sea. Yeah. And you get storms from both sides, right? Like sometimes storms come through Abruzzo and go to the Marque, but mostly they come from the sea. Yeah. How does that affect the harvest pattern? It's very interesting to think about that. You look at the map of uh, Europe 
and you see the left part, look in the map, so the Tyrrhenian Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea, uh, with the islands, you know, Sardinia and, and Corsica, and it's all about red wine, you know? So Sangiovese and Grenache and Syrah and uh, Garnacha, Canonau, you know, it's really about the red. If you look at the, the right part, so the Adriatic Sea, it's like a community which is focused on the white wines. You know, there is Trebbiano d'Abruzzo in Abruzzo, there is Pecorino, Verdicchio, Albana in Romagna, and then you go up and you, you go to Carso, you have, of course, Prosecco, you have, and then the Friuli, so, you know, Tokai, Frulano, and the Sauvignon, and then the Malvasi Estriana, and then all the original variety in Croatia are mainly on white, you know? And this is, this is cool for me, because it express really that climate. It's completely different. And uh, we have the heat waves coming from Africa that goes through Sicily to Sardinia and then to the south of France, and of, of course, Tuscany. And we have the cold winds coming from the Balkans, from in winter from Siberia, you know, coming down and in, just in front, they find the Marche, Abruzzo, you know. And so all this to say that we had been a very cold region until probably 15, 20 years ago. And this is the reason why the, the white wines were so, so good and so, so well known. So you don't think it's like there's a strip of underlying soil that goes down that side, like limestone on that side or something? Uh, no, because you may find the same, the same, almost the same soil also in Lange. I mean, the Adriatic Sea used to arrive until uh, Lange, you know? During the Miocene era and then the Pliocene era, there was sea until the Alps, you know? And over there, of course, they, they make red wines. <laughs> so it's much more about the, the climate, about the, the cold winds, about the temperature a little bit lower. For example, if in January, it snows very, very often in the Marca region. It's very difficult that you see snow in Tuscany, you know? are two, three degrees of difference, always. The market has a like a high degree of state-mandated parks, right? Like there's uh, yeah. forest preserves and yeah. parks, yeah. wild animals. Yeah, especially in the south, but near, close to Abruzzo, there, are, there is a, this beautiful, beautiful park, which is called the Sibillini Park Mountains. Uh, but also in other... In other Another area close to the Apennines. And there is this other beautiful park, which is uh, the Conero Park, which is right in the middle of the sea. And uh, it's a mountain that goes down to the sea. And it's pretty famous for a wine, which is the Rosso Conero. So that means it's not just a monoculture, right? Like it's not, you're not just walking into vines after vines after vines. There's some mixed things going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't look so many vineyards if you come in the back region. A lot of cereals, a lot of uh, olive oil, a lot of uh, animals, et 
it's an heritage from a sharecropping, you know. So it's like a bruzzo, but closer to the water. Yeah, yeah. And maybe yeah. lower in elevation sometimes. Yeah, exactly. We don't have the, you know, the Gran Sasso, which is almost 3,000 meters high. And so when did you start to really like your own wines? I mean, I, I was in love with the 2004. That was my first, first vintage. But of course, it wasn't perfect. It was, uh, was a very good vintage. So maybe it was, it was good for me because of, of the vintage. But then probably 2010 was, was uh, the first vintage that I really, really understood that my way was found. Are those both cooler years? Yeah, 10 for sure was, uh, I mean, it's, it's strange because we are talking now about cool vintage. And if you see the statistics, they are still above the average. <laughs> so it means that really, really we had a, a switched, completely changed in the climate, in the, in the area. So we consider cold vintage like the, the 10 or the 2004, which were cool, but completely normal if you see the, the average. <laughs> But we had, you know, 7, 3, uh, 11, 12 uh, that were completely out of the average. You know? And 15 also. When I think about the kinds of things you were saying earlier about the people that were interesting to you, I mean, usually when people express those kind of interests, they also experiment a little with skin contact or maybe have some clay in the cellar. Or were those ideas that you had at some point? You know, it's very it's very easy to uh to fall in this uh misunderstanding which is uh, oh i i make natural wines so my wines should be strange should be uh, orange should be you know uh, fermented in in clay or in strange stuff for me it's not about that it's simply about making good wines and uh, so I didn't really, I mean, I experimented a lot, but I never uh, thought that the way was make it strange, you know, make it completely. There is, for me, there is always a tradition. There is always a line that you, you must follow. You know? So for me, it's making a good wine, uh, having respect of a tradition and having respect of the terroir. That, that's my way. And so you have the three grape varieties that are white that you grow, and how do they express themselves differently, and when do you decide to blend them together or not? I made three whites at the moment, and the first one is a verdicchio with a small quota of uh, a Trebbiano. And there was not really a decision in doing that, but it was only that the vineyards had the Trebbiano in originally planted there. And the reason why the other wines, the Reserva, is a hundred percent verdicchio is strange, but it's only because it's an old vineyard. But the part that was not planted with uh, verdicchio was planted with Sangiovese. So when we harvest that vineyard, of course, we only take the verdicchio, the white, 
you know. So this is the reason why it's a 100% of Dicchio. And then there is a third white, which is an orange wine. And I decided to make this wine because, of course, at the beginning, I told you, you know, there was this big revolution and I was tasting all these orange wines from Slovenia, especially from Slovenia, but then from Georgia. And I tried with Verdicchio. And I have a couple of years where I made a, a long maceration with Verdicchio, but the wine it was not good. So in, I never released that on, on the market. I was not convinced about the wine. And then I tried with Trebbiano. And Trebbiano is, uh, is a strange animal because uh, it gives probably one of the most beautiful wine uh, on planet Earth, which is uh, Valentini Trebbiano d'Abruzzo. But is that uh, the same Trebbiano that you have? No, no, it's different. Okay. It's different. Because uh, there's like we, many, right? Yeah, yeah, there are many. It's, it's, uh, but at the same time, Trebbiano gives probably the worst grape for the worst cooperative, you know? In a way, it's like Sangiovese. You can make <laughs> the best Brunello di Montalcino and the worst begging box. And so which is the difference? Probably terroir, probably the soil, probably, you know, the way you work, the way you make farming, you know? And so it was, it was interesting for me trying with Trebbiano. And so the third wine is basically is a 60% Trebbiano with a little bit of Verdicchio and Malvasia. And I must confess that Trebbiano, I, I felt in love with Trebbiano variety. And the, the last vineyard I planted was mainly Trebbiano. Um, but what kind of Trebbiano are you planting? Is it? Ah, uh, basically we, we, we can plant Trebbiano Toscano. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There is a list of uh, variety that are, uh, you know, allowed to be planted in the region. And uh, there is not Trebbiano d'Abruzzo and not, for example, you can plant Malvasia Toscana, but not Malvasia uh, Istriana, which is strange because uh, the Croatian <laughs> is closer to market than Tuscan. That's some part of, of Tuscan. <laughs> so it's kind of, well, it's the same. You can, you can uh, buy a Marca Bianco IGT, but Riesling or Chardonnay. But you cannot buy a Marche Bianco IGT Verdicchio or Pecorino because uh, are protected uh, in the DOP, in the DOC. So it's confusing. <laughs> so was there ever a tradition like in Tuscany of blending red grapes and white grapes together, like how it used to be for Chianti? Did that ever happen with? Not in Cupramontana. The red wine was really residual. Especially after 1968, there was a uh, red wine, but it, a red wine was consumed very, very young. Uh, in November, December, January, in the first uh, winter, with a very, very short maceration, like uh, a very easy, easy wine, like a Novello, without the technique of Novello, of course, without the maceration, carbonic maceration, but was a very easy, easy wine. And the white was the wine that people uh, used to drink after one year or more. I still feel like there's that divide with Marque Reds where it's either a straightforward one 
or a really, really complex or a lot of wood kind of one. You know, it's like the really straightforward, cheap Rosso Conero or Vernaccia Nera, and then the one that's like got the special label that's not yeah. cheap. You know what yeah. I mean? It's meant to be like serious. I think we are still working on uh, on the red in the region. Because I'm, I'm sure we can we can do beautiful red wines. And I'm focusing a lot on, on, on red wines in the last five, six years. I planted more vineyard, red vineyard than white vineyard. But I think we have a lot to understand. So do you plant the red vineyards at different exposures and different elevations? No, I, I planted close to the white vineyards. But my idea is that because of the global warming, probably we are becoming more and more an area, not only for red wine, of course, but less for white wines and more for red wines. Seasons are, are changing dramatically. So, If I think of white grapes that have red wine characters, like if I had my eyes closed and I tasted one, I could sometimes confuse a certain kind of radicchio or a certain kind of trebbiano with a red wine. Yeah. Like it has that kind of structure to it one way or yeah. another. Yeah, yeah. I think if you pour it in a black glass, sometimes you can, you can be confused. So how does it work with things like yields? You said you're kind of forsaking the modern style, mm-hmm. you know, but one of the things of that controlled modern style is often to do the green harvest and, mm-hmm. and drop fruit and get more deeper yields. Are you doing the green harvest and dropping fruit, or what are you doing? All that kind of stuff, you have to do that because you made errors before. This is my my point, my idea. Probably you didn't make a, a right planting at the beginning, or you made a lot of fertilization, or uh, maybe the pruning were was not correct. When you have a vineyard which is balanced, you don't have to make a green, a big work on the uh, on the green harvest, or especially if you have old vineyards. Well, that definitely makes sense. That the older yeah. vines would do yeah. less yields. Are they head trained or are they on wires? We we have very high. It's not like Abruzzo. We don't have pergola, but we have like. One meter and a half, maybe more, of leaves. On wire. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the only the only vineyard that is a little bit, we, we call Alberello, you know, is the red one that I planted in 2009. But it's, it's completely uh, something new in the region. Why did you decide to do that? Because again, uh, if you plant a vineyard today, you have to think what happens in 30 years or 40 years. And so more and more will be like Puglia or Sicily in the future, in the next future. So, so we have to you know, reduce the water stress. And that's a way. What kind of fruit are you getting from that vineyard now? The Alberello one? Montepulciano, Sangiovese, and Vernaccia Nera. But I mean, what's the quality of the fruit? Oh, uh, great. Yeah? Yeah, I have to say, yeah. Uh, I mean, I planted in 2009, so I've seen fruit in very, very dry season, like 2012, and, and in very, very humid and rainy season, like 2014. And I must confess that 
I was really impressed about the reaction of the of the vineyards and the quality of the fruit. It's something that I found out speaking a lot with Giovanna Morganti in Castelnuovo Bernardenga. And that's kind of her signature, that style. Yeah. yeah. So what did she tell you when you talked about it? Because I've never met her. I mean, I tasted at her uh, 2002, for example, which was a difficult year in Tuscany, and was great, completely great. So the reaction of the vine uh, is, uh, is beautiful. So for me, Montepulciano and Vernaccia Nera seem like kind of opposites. Mm-hmm. What are they like in the vineyard? Like for the white, in the market region, we, we didn't have a, a story of a variety that was completely predominant. We had always mixed varieties for wine. But in, in the last years, everyone went through, you know, the 100% Montepulciano in the south and the other percent of Sangiovese in the north, which is cool. But for me, you, it's riskful because, because we are a region with a lot of different season. It's difficult to balance the wine, you know, through the years. You have to consider that there is almost one month, not one month, but 20 days of uh, difference in the ripeness between Sangiovese and Montepulciano. Uh, That's a pretty serious amount of time. Yeah. For example, in 2013, I harvested the Sangiovese. It was 25 of September, and the Montepulciano, it was 18 October. It's a long time, you know. And Vernaccia Nera, it's, it's very late, like the Montepulciano. It's very, very late. And uh, it's, uh, it's a strange variety. I, I, I cannot say to, to know very well, because uh, you have to consider that Vernaccia Nera now is cultivated like 50 kilometers from the Castelli di Iesi in Macerata, around Macerata. It's the, the variety of Vernaccia di Sara Petrona. So I planted, I replanted the Vernaccia Nera because we made uh, an historical study where we found out that Vernaccia Nera was planted in 200 years ago also in Ancona, near Ancona, Castelli di Iesi. And so the idea for me is to balance all this stuff. So the acidity of the Sangiovese, the color of the Montepulciano, the green tannins of the Vernaccia Nera. It's a very raw uh, stuff, Vernaccia Nera. It's really like a wild horses, you know. <laughs> and you have to, to find out the way. Very, very animal, you know, very spicy. Sometimes people dry it, right? Some people... Yeah, 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 exactly. Is there any tradition of that around where you are? No, no, no. But the reason, I think the reason why Vernaccia di Serra Petrona is a sparkling wine that comes from dried, you know, grape is that uh, Vernaccia is a very late variety and Serra Petrona is a very small village in the mountains with all woods around. So it's very difficult to have uh, the perfect ripeness of Vernaccia over there. So the only way is to uh, dry it a little bit 
and to manage the high acidity with the, making a sparkling wine. No? So you have sweetness that cover a little bit the, the acidity and you have the sparkling that gives some bubbles to the... Freshness. <laughs> yeah, it's like a little bit like Lambrusco, I guess. No? The idea of making... I guess, but it seems different. Like more yeah, it is completely different. More My, I mean, the idea. Right, you know, right, The right. idea of the wine. But it seems more wild somehow, usually. And yeah. like the textures are different. Yeah. yeah. But I've had some non-sparkling ones that were good too. I was I was curious because uh, for me, it can give uh, a own touch to, to the wine, you know? Like this spicy, this, uh, this green stuff that you can taste that refresh a little bit the Montepulciano which is very very you know powerful and uh, speaking about green stuff do you ever do like whole cluster and use stems or I've changed a, a lot the vinification with the red and especially with the other red that I, I make the easy one I mean which is Montepulciano Sangiovese there is a 5% of Cabernet Sauvignon that was my my first mistake <laughs> I made in 1999 was actually but it's only one row <laughs> it was an experiment but mainly the wine is 95% Sangiovese and Montepulciano and in that wine I, I use more and more you know the entire grape to give a little bit of freshness and uh, um, I love this this green side that that comes from. Do Vernaccia Nera or Montepulciano give high sugars? Montepulciano for sure, yeah, yeah. Vernaccia Nera, um, no. I mean, it depends because I'm still trying to understand it. So it's like you know when you go out the first date. <laughs> and you're still to understand. You're curious if there's going to be sugar or not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see. I think I do know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still trying to 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 learn about red wine. And uh, they say it's easier to make red wine. And this probably is true. But it's very difficult to make good red wines. <laughs> What about lees? Do you leave it uh, either the red or the white on lees? Yeah, for a yeah, time? yeah. Kind of crucial to your style for white, I think. Yeah, uh, I think it's very important. If, if you work well at the beginning, uh, all you you get from the fermentation is good, and so it, it should stay until the bottling. For me, this is my my opinion. Oh, so basically, you rack onto bottle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many people they they change. From here, from this tank to the other, to, it's like you know a continued process of clarification. I leave the the wine dirty, completely dirt until the bottling. In terms of the press, are you doing much with press wine or no? It depends a little bit with the uh, with the the kind of uh, vintage it has been, you know, because after the maceration, the skin could be very, you know very bad, very destroyed, completely gone, and so it's better. You know, you press and you take it for home. <laughs> but sometimes there is still something that you, you can extract. So it, it, it depends. It's something, you know, my winemaking is something really sensitive. It's really, uh, I, I, you know, I taste, it's something really 
being with with the foot in the <laughs> in the uh, in the ground, you know. And that's the fun part for you. Probably. Yeah, yeah, it's completely it's completely it's a poetry, you know. It's like create something. And so you've been doing it the way that you want to do it, at least for white for about 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. So the next 10 years, what do you think might happen? Because it's been a lot of changes in the time that you've been there already. You know what? I, I'm never satisfied. So this is a problem. It's, a, it's my character. You know? It's my, my way of being. So uh, I'm trying to experiment. So now we have this rosé, which is uh, not a, ros a real rosé. It's a blend of uh, white and red grape made at, you know, the ancient way. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a new stuff, you know. So uh, I think the idea is to become more and more like a rural community, you know. I think you cannot only uh, make wine. I mean, we, we also make olive oil, we make cereals. And so the idea is to... We, we, we have a music festival that it's a big happening in end of June, usually. And uh, I mean, the, the idea is like making uh, a community of people that loves... Um, wines, but also culture, you know, culture and uh, art and music. And so con connecting people, making something that usually happened only in the big cities. In my region, the young people, they left, you know, the, the region because they wanted to study and to, to live in the big cities and to go to cinemas, to theaters, you know to live uh, an active life, you know. But now you, we can do this also in the countryside. And more and more, I think that the chance for the future is transform the city in a way, in a place where you can make farming, you know, like, like in New York City. I know that there are places, park or or houses where you can, you know, cultivate tomatoes or something else and and making the you know something which is typical of the big cities like festivals like artistic performance in the countryside so this relation between the city and, and the countryside for me it's really a challenge Corrado de Torre would like to connect people with wine thank you very much for being here today thank you thank you very much Crotitore of La Distesta in the Marche of Italy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe. 
on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by Vinitaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.